Section 24 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 3, Part 3. There is reason to suppose that the practice of toleration of different sects was nearly on the same footing in the year 1688 as it is at the present time, since the Princess Anne thus writes to her sister. It is a melancholy prospect that all we of the Church of England have. All sectaries may now do as they please. Everyone has the free exercise of their religion, on purpose, no doubt, to ruin us, which I think, to all impartial judges, is very plain. For my part, I expect every moment to be spoke to about my religion, and wonder very much I have heard nothing of it yet. Anne, throughout the summer, vainly expected some persecution from her father. She reiterates this expectation so often that she must have been disappointed that it never came. She paid a visit to her father at Windsor during her husband's absence in Denmark. She wrote to her sister thus. Windsor, August 18, 1688. I am in as great expectation of being tormented as ever, for I never can believe that Mansell, that is the king her father, would go on so violently if he had not some hopes that in time he may gain either you or me. For the first time some cause of alarm seemed to exist, since, while she was alone at Windsor with the king her father, he introduced the pope's legate to her when the queen was holding a grand drawing-room at the castle. Nothing further came of this presentation than fright. The princess attended sermons and lectures three times in St. George's Chapel that day as a security against the insidious attacks of the newly arrived legate, whom her father had madly invited, or rather forced, into his dominions, to incense the people to revolution. Directly, Sancroft and his prelates were incarcerated in the tower. The Princess of Orange addressed to him an epistle by the pen of Dr. Stanley from Hounslardyke, where the court of Orange was then abiding, to inform him of the exultation with which his firm resistance to the encroachments of Rome were viewed in Holland. All men, wrote Dr. Stanley, that love the Reformation do rejoice in it and thank God for it, as an act most resolute and every way becoming your places. But especially, our excellent prince and princess were well pleased with it, notwithstanding all that the Marquis of Albaville, the king's envoy here, could say against it, that they have both vindicated it before him, and given me a command in their names, to return your grace their hearty thanks for it, and at the same time to express their real concern for your grace and all your brethren, and for the good cause in which your grace is engaged, in your refusing to comply with the king, that is James the second, is by no means looked upon by them as tending to disparage the monarchy, for they reckon the monarchy to be really undervalued by illegal actions. Indeed, we have great reason to bless and thank God for their highnesses steadiness in so good a cause. No response did all these notes of exultation elicit from the venerable patriarch of the Reformed Church. Bow down with sorrow, mourning over the wounds that ancient and beloved church was receiving from him whose duty it was to protect her. He anticipated no very great amelioration of them from a foreigner whose belief vibrated between deism and predestinarianism. No flattery could obtain from Sancroft one murmur, one factious complaint, he had companions in his imprisonment, spirits worthy of communion with his own. 
One was Dr. Ken, the late almoner of the Princess of Orange, Bishop of Bath and Wells. It must have been from him that Sancroft derived his deep distrust of the motives of the Prince and Princess of Orange, for he had been domesticated with the Prince, and had been witness of his immoral private life, and his bad influence over his wife. The incarcerated prelates of the Church of England were triumphantly acquitted by a jury at Westminster Hall, and subsequently released. King James, by his cessation to the Church of Rome, had deprived himself of the active loyalty of the Reformed Church, and had given the best and most high-principled of his subjects no other alternative than that of standing mournfully neuter to witness the completion of his ruin, although nothing could induce them, either from motives of revenge or interest, to hasten it. That ruin now came on with fearful velocity, accelerated by his own trusted and beloved children. There was little need for either the Prince or Princess of Orange, or the Princess Anne, to have disgraced themselves by the course they took. The natural tide of events must have led to the results which took place. The people had looked anxiously towards her, whom they long considered as the heiress of their throne. A resemblance was even fancied between her person and that of Queen Elizabeth, and this popular notion perhaps prompted the reply of Edmund Waller to James II, when the king gave the veteran poet and statesman an audience in his private cabinet. "'How do you like that portrait of my eldest daughter?' asked the father, drawing Waller's attention to a fine full length of Mary." just opposite to his chair. My eyes are dim, replied Waller. But if that is the Princess of Orange, she bears some resemblance to the greatest woman the world ever saw. The king asked whom he meant, and testified some surprise when Waller answered, Queen Elizabeth. She had great ministers, dryly observed the king. And when did your majesty ever know a fool choose wise ones? Rejoined Waller impressively. The great-grandson of Mary, Queen of Scots, might have been excused for not joining very cordially in the praises of Queen Elizabeth. This anecdote, for some reason, although it contains proof of his parental feelings for his daughter, has been related to his injury and to her advantage. The picture referred to in the anecdote was that which now presents itself on the left hand, on entering the royal suite at Hampton Court. The lightness of the complexion and hair, and the sharpness of the lower part of the face, give a shade of likeness to Queen Elizabeth, but there is another over the door of the royal closet, which is a better resemblance of the princess herself. Both are by the Dutch artist, Wising. He was, although a Dutchman, not employed by William of Orange, but by James II. The father, who had not seen his beloved Mary for some years, desired to have a resemblance of her after he was king. For this purpose, he sent his painter, Wising, to Holland, and gave him a commission to paint the portraits of his daughter and his son-in-law, and bring them back to England with him. Wising did so, but died early in 1687. Therefore, these Hampton Court portraits must be dated between King James's accession and the death of the artist employed by him. The two portraits of Mary, which are nearly duplicates in design, were painted on this occasion one being left in Holland, and the other found at Hampton Court, when the undutiful original took possession of all her father's personal property. There is, likewise, an equestrian portrait of William III, which must greatly have deceived all his young romantic partisans in England, who named the orange pair from Wising's portraits, or Monzor and Phoenixiana. 
William appears in the proportions of a hero, seven feet in height, instead of one, two feet shorter. James II was probably greatly amused at this flattery of his Dutch painter, but it had its effect in England. In the second portrait of Mary, the princess is seated in her garden. She is dressed in a gown of the full blue color, which was then called garter blue. She holds back her veil with one hand. She has no ornament on her head, but wears a throat necklace of large pearls. In the reign of James II, public opinion spoke at convivial meetings in quaint rhymes called toasts, which were sung at the time when healths were drunk. I know not whether you have heard a health or toast that goes about which is new to me just now, so sent it you. Toast. The king God bless, and each princess, the church no less, which we profess, as did Queen Bess. The conduct of the Princess Anne at this crisis is minutely delineated by the pen of Lord Clarendon, her mother's brother, who had the opportunity of seeing her daily. James II traveled with his daughter Anne to London, September 18th, a few days after her uncle, Lord Clarendon, attended her levee and found her in her bedchamber with only one of her dressers completing her toilet. The reports of the projected invasion from Holland were agitating all London. Anxious thoughts regarding the welfare of his royal master weighed heavily on the loyal heart of Clarendon, and he earnestly wished to awaken a responding interest for her father in the heart of Anne. She asked me why I did not come to her as often as I used to do. I answered that her royal highness had not been long in town, but that wherever I was, I should be ready to wait upon her if she had any commands for me. She then told me that she had found the king much agitated about the preparations which were making in Holland, and asked me what I had heard. I said, I was out of all manner of business, and truly that I heard nothing but common rumors. The princess then expressed her detestation of Lord and Lady Sunderland, upon which her uncle observed that he was much surprised to find her royal highness in that mind towards Lady Sunderland, in whom all the world thought she took the kindest interest, and, added he, may I presume to ask what is the matter between ye? I think her the worst woman in the world, responded the princess Anne. A pause ensued, which was broken by Lord Clarendon, saying, I wish your royal highness had not heretofore thought so well of her, but I am sure that you had a just caution given you of her. Thus the revilings in which the princess indulged at the name of Lady Sunderland had been preceded by a close intimacy, against which her uncle had vainly warned her. The princess did not like the last reminiscence, and looked at her watch, a huge appendage, almost as large as a timepiece, which ladies then carried by their sides, and her uncle withdrew. What can this mean? He wrote, in comment on this dialogue, after recording it in his diary. She seems to have a mind to say something, and yet is upon a reserve. The next day, Lord Clarendon attended at Whitehall Palace, the levee of her father, who expressed his certainty of the invasion by his son-in-law. In the afternoon, he continues, I waited again on the Princess Anne. I told her what had passed between the king and me. She answered very dryly. I know nothing but what the prince my husband tells me he hears from the king. In the course of a few days, her uncle made a positive attempt on her feelings as a daughter, thinking that, 
as she was so infinitely beloved by james the second she might successfully warn him of his danger when the following dialogue took place between the uncle and the niece she mentioned that the king had received an express which declared that all the dutch troops were embarked and that the prince of orange was to embark on monday next and that lord shrewsbury lord wiltshire and henry sidney were with them she added that the king her father seemed much disturbed and very melancholy i took the liberty to say proceeds lord clarendon that it was pity nobody would take this opportunity of speaking honestly to the king and that i humbly thought it would be very proper for her royal highness to say something to him and beg him to confer with some of his old friends who had always served him faithfully i never speak to the king on business was the answer of the princess anne to this appeal her uncle replied that her father could not but take it well to see her royal highness concerned for him that it might produce some good effect and no ill could possibly come of it but continues he the more i pressed her the more reserved she became at last she said that she must dress herself for it was almost prayer time the daughter then went forth to pray and clarendon grieved by the uselessness of his attempt to awaken her filial feelings retired with a heavy heart while such were the proceedings of the youngest sister the elder in holland was acting a part the turpitude of which it might be supposed no fanatical self-deception could veil from her own conscience her deepest guilt was the falsehood by which she sought to deceive her father relative to the preparations making in holland for the invasion of england which she repeatedly assured him were merely for the usual service of the emperor this untruth mary repeated constantly to her unfortunate father who seems if we may judge by his replies to have sought every species of excuse for her falsehood here are specimens of the letters she received from him we must remember that they are but extracts garbled by an enemy the first seems to have been in answer to some deceitful and misleading assurances of the daughter james the second to his daughter mary whitehall september twenty first sixteen eighty eight all the discourse here is about the great preparations making in holland and what the great fleet which is coming out to sea from thence is to do a little time will show james the second to his daughter mary whitehall september twenty fifth sixteen eighty eight i see by yours of the twentieth instant that the prince of orange was gone to the hague and from thence that he was arrived what his business is there at this time i do really believe you are not acquainted with nor with the resolution he has taken which alarms all people here very much the calmness of the succeeding letter written under the utter conviction that his son-in-law was about to invade him in profound peace is very remarkable for whatsoever injury james the second might meditate against the church of england mary and her husband had received nothing but good from him james the second to his daughter mary whitehall september twenty eighth sixteen eighty eight this evening i had yours of the fourth from Deeren, by which i find you were then to go to the hague being sent for by the prince i suppose it is to inform you of his design of coming to england which he has been so long a contriving i hope it will have been as great a surprise to you as it was to me when i first heard it 
being sure it is not in your nature to approve of so unjust an undertaking. I have been all this day so busy to endeavor to be in some condition to defend myself from so unjust and unexpected an attempt, that I am almost tired, and so I shall say no more, but that I shall always have as much kindness for you, as you will give me leave to have. These letters were followed by others which, in their parental simplicity, must have been heart-rending to anyone not exactly provided with a heart of marble. The evident failure of physical strength expressed by the old father, the worn-out hero of many a hard battle, while making ready to repel the hostility of his children, ought to have been agonizing to the daughter. James II to his daughter Mary. Whitehall, October 2nd, 1688. I was this morning abroad to take the air, and to see some batteries I have made below Woolrich, for the defense of the river, and since I came back, I have been so very busy to prepare things for the invasion intended, that I could not write till now, that tis near midnight, so that you might not wonder if my letter be short. For news, you will have it from others, for really I am very weary, so shall end which I do, with assuring you of my continuing as kind to you as you can desire. The tone of calm sorrow is remarkable in the last and most tender of these epistles. It will be seen by the date that the correspondence between the father and daughter was constant, even down to a few days of the landing of his enemy. Surely this letter, gentle and reasonable as it is, still searching for excuses, and hoping against hope, that he had the sympathy of his child, persuading himself, and quite willing to persuade her, that she did not participate in aught against him, is replete with touching pathos. The old Greek tragedians often imagined such situations, they could grandly paint the feelings, natural to a mind, torn between the clashing interests of filial and conjugal love, just as the old monarch supposes here was the case with his Mary. But neither poet nor moralist has described conduct like that of the royal heroine of the Revolution of 1688. King James to his daughter Mary, Whitehall, October 9th, 1688. I had no letter from you by the last post, which you see does not hinder me from writing to you now, not knowing, certainly, what may have hindered you from doing it. I easily believe you may be embarrassed how to write to me now, that the unjust design of the Prince of Orange's invading me is so public. And though I know you are a good wife, and ought to be so, yet for the same reason, I must believe you will still be as good a daughter to a father that has always loved you so tenderly, and that has never done the least thing to make you doubt it. I shall say no more, and believe you very uneasy all this time, for the concern you must have for a husband and a father. You shall still find me kind to you, if you desire it. Perhaps this was the last letter that passed at this crisis from the father to the daughter. It does honor to the king, for here we see the patient and much enduring love of the parent. It is a letter, the retrospection of which, must have cut deep into the conscience, if Mary the daughter ever reviewed the past in the lone silent watches of the night. While James II was thus writing to the elder princess, his faithful brother-in-law, Clarendon, was laboring to wake some filial fears in the obtuse mind of his niece, Anne. It was more than a fortnight before he could obtain another conference with her, for she avoided all his attempts at private conversation. 
he visited her however in the evening of october the tenth when she made an observation regarding her father's evident anguish of mind lord clarendon told her that it was her duty to speak freely to the king which would be a comfort to him to this the princess made no reply clarendon soon after attended the royal levy at whitehall there king james told him the news that the prince of orange had embarked with all the dutch troops and would sail with the first favorable wind i have nothing added the unfortunate father by this day's post from my daughter the princess of orange and it is the first time i have missed hearing from her for a long time he never heard from her again lord clarendon almost forced an interview with his niece anne i told her he writes in his journal most of what the king had said i earnestly pressed her to speak to him i entreated her to be the means of prevailing on him to hear some of his faithful old friends but he bitterly adds she would do nothing just at this time were reports that the dutch expedition was scattered and injured by heavy october gales james the second ordered the examination to take place before his privy council relative to the birth of the prince of wales lord clarendon as the uncle of the princesses whose claims to the british throne were apparently superseded by the birth of their brother was requested to be present at the depositions taken by the numerous witnesses on oath he had never for a moment entertained a doubt on the subject and he seems to think that the most unbelieving must henceforth rest convinced that the report of a spurious child was a calumny the princess his niece was at her levee when on the morning of the twenty third of october her maternal uncle honestly came to tell her his opinion of the identity of her brother simple man hoping to satisfy and relieve her mind he had not had the benefit of perusing her private sentiments on the subject as our readers have done he knew not that a letter written by her hand then existed declaring that she thought it a comfort that all people in england asserted that the infant prince her brother was an impostor the princess was dressing for prayers all her women were about her and they and their mistress were loud in mirth and jest when lord clarendon added himself to the group at the toilette the princess at once plunged boldly and publicly into the discussion which she knew was on her uncle's mind fine discourse she exclaimed you heard at council yesterday and then she made herself very merry with the whole affair laughing loud and long and as her dressing proceeded her women put in their jests her uncle was scandalized and disgusted by the scene i was he says amazed at her behavior but i thought it unfit to say anything then i whispered to her highness to request that she would give me leave to speak with her in private it grows late replied the princess and i must hasten to prayers but you can come at any time except this afternoon so i went home in the evening my brother lawrence was with me i told him all concerning the princess anne i begged him to go and talk to her it will signify nothing emphatically replied the other uncle of the princess the wish of lord clarendon in seeking these interviews with his niece was to awaken her filial affection to a sense of her father's danger and if he could effect this he meant to induce her to become the mediatrix between his majesty and his loyal people for the security of the church of england obtaining at the same time 
a guarantee that her infant brother should be brought up in that faith. Clarendon dreaded as much danger to that beloved church from the dissenting prince who aspired to be its head, as from the Roman Catholic head, then in authority. James was injuring the church by storm. William, whom he well knew, would proceed by sap. One wounded, the other would paralyze. In the afternoon, Lord Clarendon paid another visit to the princess, his niece. She made many excuses to avoid a conference with him. I fancy, he remarks in his journal, that she has no mind to talk to me. Anne certainly anticipated the reproof she knew her uncle was resolved to administer for her odious conduct at his former visit. Lord Clarendon asked her, if she had received any letters from the Princess of Orange. No, said the princess, I have not had any for a long while, and added, that her sister never wrote to her of any of these matters. How falsely she spoke, her uncle could not tell so well as the readers of her previous letters. Lord Clarendon visited the princess two days later. She was dressing, but as Lady Churchill was present, he resolved to delay the admonition he was waiting for a suitable opportunity to administer. Two days after, he found her at home. She came, he says, out of her closet very quickly, and told me she was sorry she had disappointed me so often when I desired to speak to her, and she now wished to know what I had to say. Then the reproof, which Anne so well deserved, was administered. I told her, continues her uncle, that I was extremely surprised and shocked the other day to find Her Royal Highness speak so slightingly regarding her family affairs, and above all, to suffer her women to break their unseemly jests regarding the birth of her brother. The princess replied, Sure, you cannot but hear the common rumors concerning him. I do hear very strange rumors indeed, said her uncle, as everyone must do who lives publicly in the world, but there is no color for these. I will not say that I believe them, replied the princess, but I needs must say that the queen's behavior was very odd. And here Anne, although a young woman and speaking to a man, used expressions of that vulgar coarseness of which no examples are to be found like hers, either from the lips or pen of a British princess, even in the ages of semi-barbarism. Possibly, replied Clarendon, the queen did not know the reports. I am sure, answered the princess Anne. The king, that is James the second, knew of them, for as he had been sitting by me in my own chamber, he would speak of the idle stories that were given out, of the queen not being likely to have a child, laughing at them. Therefore I cannot wonder that there was no more care taken to satisfy the world. This speech proves that James the second spent his time occasionally sitting by his daughter's side and conversing familiarly with her. Clarendon asked, if her royal highness had, upon those occasions, said anything to the king her father. The princess Anne owned that she had not. Then, said her uncle, your father might very well think that you minded the reports no more than he did, since you said nothing to him, even when he gave you opportunities, that in my humble opinion, if you had felt the least dissatisfaction, you ought to have discovered it, for the public good, as well as for your own sake, and that of the Princess of Orange. If I had said anything to the king, replied the Princess Anne, 
He might have been angry, and then God knows what might have happened. If you had no mind to have spoken to the king yourself, observed her uncle, you have friends who would have managed to serve you without prejudice to you. And remember, continued the stern loyalist, this is the first time you have said anything to me, although I had given you occasion to open your mind by urging your speaking to the king your father since these alarms of invasion. He concluded by begging the princess to consider the miseries which might be entailed upon these kingdoms, even in case that God might bless the king her father with more sons, and he requested her to do something which might publicly prove her satisfaction that her brother was no spurious child. To all this, she made no answer. It was not indeed a very palatable suggestion to the Princess Anne, which bade her look forward to a succession of brothers, considering the infinity of pains she had taken to invalidate the royal birth of the only one in existence. The next day, the king ordered his whole privy council to wait upon his daughter, the Princess Anne, with copies of the depositions concerning the birth of the Prince of Wales. In the evening, they waited upon her in state. Upon receiving the depositions from the lords of the privy council, the princess replied, My lords, this is not necessary, for I have so much duty for the king, that his word is more to me than all these depositions. Such were the outward expressions of the lips of the princess Anne, which were in utter contradiction to her private words and writings. She need not have soiled her mind and conscience with duplicity and dark and dirty intrigues, England would have denied the succession to an heir bred a Roman Catholic, even if his sisters had been truthful women and grateful and dutiful daughters. Lord Clarendon was in the ante-room and heard the fair-seeming reply of his niece, and when the lords of council went out, he entered her presence. The princess, he said, was pleased to tell me the answer she gave to the council. I hope, replied Clarendon, that there now remains no suspicion with your royal highness. She made no answer. End of section 24